And if you have a Bible there, it'd be very helpful to you to follow along uh, nearby. Uh, I'm not going to put all the passages up on the screen over this series, so it'd be good to have a Bible or your iPad or even your phone, if that's where you have your Bible. Um, And also what's helpful is to open up your outline uh, that that I gave you as you came in. And on that outline, you'll notice a couple of things on the back. There's four points on the front, but on the back you can see a family tree. I think that's quite helpful, um, just so you know where everything fits in. The family tree is helpful uh, and important, I should say. And also a map, wondering where Moab is, um, that's where it is. So I'm, I'm sorry it's so small, but uh, just bring it closer to your face. Okay. Um, how about we pray and ask God to, uh, to help us as we look at this book? And then we'll um, get into it. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for this great uh, story, this moment in history that we get to just uh, step into for a time. And we thank you, Lord, for how it fits into the big picture of our history, our story. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would uh, guide us in our thinking. You would help us to listen to your word carefully. You would help us to trust in you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So Bob Dylan's... 1963 classic, uh, Blowing in the Wind, cried out, how many times? Now, I was practising doing a Bob Dylan impersonation in my office during the week. If you wandered by, you probably thought it, Kermit the Frog was in there or something. It didn't sound very good, so I'm not going to give you an impersonation of Bob Dylan, but I'm going to read you some of the words. So he cries out in, his, in, his, in this classic song, he says, how many times... Will we have to see something repeated over and over again? That's, how the, that's the song, isn't it? So, yes, and how many times can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? So written in 1963, think about what's going on at the time. Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? Yes, and how many times, how many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Uh, I'm still unsure what really blowing in the wind really means, but you can tell me later. But that's the question he asks. And, and I take it Dylan wrestled, like so many other songwriters and so many poets and writers of different artists even, they wrestle with the reality that this world is actually one full of pain and it's one full of disorder and turmoil. And this gets repeated over and over again. Time and time again, it happens. And how many times? And to me, yeah, I reckon there's a sense of hopelessness in the song. Uh, Which, by the way, he wrote in 10 minutes. That's what the rumour has it. Wrote it in 10 minutes. And I reckon most of us would would resonate with what he sings. Uh, the, The hopelessness of a turbulent world. And it would be fair to say, like Dylan, I think, that we're familiar with this. We're familiar with this question, how many times, but we're familiar with, I guess, the pain. We're familiar with turmoil, maybe even more than peace, disorder more than order. That's certainly what we're fed by watching the nightly news, aren't you? You watch the news, there's, they make a big deal about a good news story because <laughs> we've been fed for the last half an hour bad news stories, really. And we live in a world, or I should say, and, and when we live in a world, a world full of such turbulence, it's not always easy to see God's hand at work. It's not, is it? And perhaps, too, when we think about the turmoil in our own lives, we feel the same way. It's not always easy to see God's hand at work. 
Who hasn't asked at one point or another, where is God in all this? Who hasn't asked that? Where is God in all this? When you look at the turmoil and turbulence in our world, where is God? Maybe even in your lives. Now, friends, that's a very real question. It's a very real human question. Where is God in all of this? It's also an ancient question. It's been asked many, many times before. Now, when you think of, uh, when you think of world, order, world history and disorder, uh, turbulent times and chaos, well, the time of the judges would actually probably be pretty close to the top of that list in terms of turmoil, turbulence. It was a time of, yes, turmoil, uh, oppression, civil unrest, personal misery. That was the time of the judges. Judges 21-25 says this. It says, in those days, and it finishes the book up, it sums up the book perfectly. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. If you've got Ruth 1 open in front of you, you flick back one page and you'll find that verse there. That's the sum up. That's, that's the era of the judges and that's the context of the events in Ruth. And it's under this backdrop that that ancient question is asked again. Where is God in all of this? So Ruth 1 verse 1. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in, a, in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephath... <laughs> Alex, you got it right before. Uh, Ephathrites, <laughs> lucky I've only got to say that once, um, from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Well, New South Wales knows a fair bit about drought, don't we? Uh, especially out west. And maybe drought was the cause of the famine that made this Israelite and his wife and two sons leave their homeland. Uh, drought, sadly, has been the cause of many farmers uh, moving and uh, selling up. Or perhaps the reason for the famine was more sinister. Uh, the, the chaos of the times, civil unrest where everyone did as they, fit, uh, they saw fit, maybe it finally had caught up to Bethlehem because so far Bethlehem, well, up until this point, had been untouched by the wars of the judges' period. Or just maybe someone else was directing the cause of the events. We ought to note, too, the irony of these first five verses. Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, Elimelech means my God is king. So here is Elimelech leaving the house of bread to go to a foreign country where God is not king to find bread to survive. I can imagine Elimelech wrestled with his decision to leave and I can imagine Elimelech asking the question in the midst of trying to provide for his family, well, where is God in all this? The Moabites had been God's enemies since the time of the, the wilderness wanderings. Deuteronomy 23 records that God cursed the people of Moab because they had refused to give the Israelites bread and water as they travelled through Moab to the promised land. And now Elimelech heads to Moab to find bread and water. 
Well, things quickly go from bad to worse in Moab for this family. Elimelech dies and Naomi is left with two sons who, against God's laws, marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Ten years on, um, Naomi's two sons die. The story now centres on Naomi, an Israelite widow in a foreign land with no men left in the family and two Moabite daughters-in-law. And given the realities of life in a patriarchal society, which it was, to be left with no men at all in the family, as Naomi is, is to be utterly bereft. Or as she puts it at the end of the chapter, she says, I'm empty. And so as we read, we, we then ask, well, what's the future for Naomi? What's next? If we're really thinking about her plight, what's next for Naomi? But I suspect one question she asked as all this was going on was, where is God? Where is God? Well, famines, uh, famines don't generally last forever and they come and go. And the news from back home of the famine in Israel was that it had ended. God had mercy on his people. So Naomi and her two daughters-in-law made plans to return to the house of bread. Let's pick it up from verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. I, I think you get the sense here of a prodigal son scene. Remember that story that Jesus told in, in uh, Luke 15. And like in Jesus' story, was her going away a terrible mistake? Is that what Naomi's asking? Because the son, of course, in, in, uh, in the prodigal son asked that question. Is Naomi like the prodigal son, sitting hungry in a far-off land, longing for the abundance of his father's house? You see, it's not just Bethlehem that she left. She feels a sense of distance from God as well. For she had heard that God had come to the aid of his people. Did you pick that up in verse 6? Hold on. What, wasn't, wasn't she one of them? Am I not one of God's people, she says? Why has God not come to my aid? Where is God in all this? But just like the lost prodigal son, well, there's only one realistic thing for her to do, and that is to come home. And so as they head back, we first notice that she's not alone. Both the daughters-in-law come with her to start with. It seems they both loved her so much that they wouldn't let her go alone. Now, perhaps it was her courage in coming to Moab in the first place that they really admired, uh, or her ability to pick herself up and keep going after the death of her husband and two sons. Naomi is clearly a, a, a woman of great character, and I don't think we should judge her by what she's like at the end of the chapter. I don't think that's fair. But perhaps it was her faith in God and the God of Israel that drew the women to her. A faith so different than the, uh, let's use some big words for a minute, the polytheistic, many gods, the pluralistic, well you can all have a God, it doesn't really matter what the truth is, it's about how you feel. The animalistic spirituality, in other words this God is like an animal and we, we worship this thing and the, hope, the hopelessness of it all. 
See, perhaps the women thought her faith, Naomi's faith in the God of Israel, well, that's worth, that's worth following along. That's, they don't want to leave that. Now, we don't know for sure why they went with Naomi, but what we do know is for a time they both went with her. So if you look at the start of verse 8, it starts with a then, indicating that some time on the journey had passed. It might only have been a short time. Who knows? But why did, then why did Naomi stop? Why did she stop? I think you can imagine her walking along uh, on this path and, and uh, getting to a point and then pausing and realising what she's doing. She stops there and she thinks, what? No, no, no. Well, what am I? This is not right. I'm making them make the same mistake as I made 10 or so plus years ago. I'm doing, I'm making them do what I did. Look how it turned out for me. So she stops. She stops and, and she's leaving a, 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 their own country and heading off to a foreign land. She stops and says, your, your prospects are so much worse by coming with me. Stay, she says. Stay. Don't come with me. Look at your, look at. But in verse 10, they, they both refuse to stay. They want to go with her. And so Naomi is insistent in verses 11 and 13. She knows their prospects are even worse than hers if they followed her back to Israel. A long life as foreign widows. And next to no chance of remarriage. Naomi's expectations of life in Israel for her and especially for Orpah and Ruth are very, very low. And in fact, Naomi's expectations of God are very low. If you skip down to verse 15, verse 15 even indicates that Naomi seemed to think that they can expect more from the Moabite gods than the God of Israel. You see where she's at, don't you? See, friends, on that road, as, as Naomi paused, a, a decision was needed. Orpah and Ruth had to make a decision. A choice was needed, needed to be made. But it wasn't a decision about where to call home. It wasn't about that. It wasn't a decision about family even. It was a decision about God. And Orpah's decision was to follow the God of Moab. Chemosh, the national God of Moab. But Ruth was different. See, she would, she would sever ties with Moab. Her heritage she would sever ties with. Her gods. Have a look at verses 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. They're great words, aren't they? Amazing scene. Ruth sacrifices everything she has in the world to follow the God of Israel, the creator of the world. She leaves family. She leaves her nation. She leaves behind her only hope of a future, at least in Naomi's eyes. And so from now on, Naomi's life was Ruth's life. Naomi's people, her people. Naomi's God, her God. Not even in death will she return. Well, it was a sort of a homecoming. 
a sort of a homecoming. Let's read verses 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And Naomi exclaimed, uh, sorry, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? It's been a long time, remember. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now I wonder if you can see Naomi's answer to our question today. Remember our question? Where is God in all this? Can you see Naomi's answer? Naomi's answer is God is all too involved. Look what you've done, God. She blames God. The Lord has brought me back empty, she says. She unloads on God. And look at her new name, Mara, bitter, because that's the way God has dealt with me, she says. But I don't know, who of us could blame her? She lost her husband. There's no food. She lost her two sons. Who of us could blame her for feeling bitter? Who of us here could, could blame her for saying, I've been dealt with bitterly? Who of us could watch a friend's husband die and then her two sons and say, all is well? Who of us could do that? See, I guess, I, I guess we can understand her. We might even be able to sympathise with Naomi's plight. But was she right to say she was empty? Was she right to say that? See, the truth is, she was not alone. And can you imagine the two of them walking into Bethlehem? It's been a long time. And Naomi's crying out, I'm empty, I'm alone, I, I'm, I'm with nothing, is the, is the real translation, of the, sort of the, the closer translation of that word. I've got nothing. And here's a friend, here's Ruth, standing right next to her. Thanks very much, Naomi. It's nice of you to include me. Um, the truth is she has Ruth. She's come back with the key not only to her future, but to the future of all her people. This young woman in all the world that God had chosen to further his purposes, the young woman who would be the mother of those who in due course would give birth to the God's King, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So she's not alone. In fact, she came back with in one sense, so much more than when she left. She came back with Ruth. And nor is she empty. Look at verse 22. We didn't read it, but verse 22 tells us that Bethlehem, the house of bread, has gone from famine to harvest. So now there's food in the house of bread. Now there's life. She's not empty. So where has God been in all of this? Well, when Naomi's world fell apart around her, where has God been? The truth is, God has been right there, involved in her world, working out her purposes. Uh, perhaps we could say that here's God working behind the scenes, like a director in a movie. There he is, uh, producing, he's moving the set pieces around, he's moving the characters where he wants them, he's uh, directing, producing and so forth. Here's a little paragraph I want you to, I'll, I'll read out for you from um, a book that I've plugged a number of times before, Guidance and the Voice of God. Uh, this is one part of their answer to the question, how does God guide us? 
and you have to read the rest of the book to see the other parts of their question. I'll read it out to you. God and his sovereignty uses everything to guide us behind the scenes. God is at work in everything. He is sovereign. Nothing is too small for him. If the hairs on our head are numbered, nothing is too evil if the death of Jesus was part of his plan. Nothing is too difficult if half-dead Abraham and Sarah, it's a bit rough, anyway, um, could, have could have children. Nothing is too great if the kingdom of darkness has been overthrown and Jesus sits at the right hand of God. God guides us along the path in ways in which are quite beyond our understanding. He uses anything and everything to achieve his plans for us, even turning our hearts and minds to follow his course. Moreover, he doesn't need our conscious cooperation to do this. Nothing can thwart his plans. We must never underestimate God's ability to guide us behind the scenes. So, at the end of scene one, chapter one, God, the director of the movie, working behind the scenes, he has Naomi exactly where he wants her. Back in the land, in Bethlehem, with Ruth right there next to her. The purposes of God are not put off by a world of turmoil, like ours or Naomi's world, the world of the judges. God is working in and through these things to move history along in the direction that he has chosen. Now today, what we've seen is that God brings to Bethlehem the ancestors of Jesus, God's king, the Christ, Messiah. He brings world history one step closer to that day when every nation, including Ruth's descendants, will stand and acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And friends, because the story of Naomi is Ruth's story, and because Ruth's story is the story of the Christ to come, this story is our story. It's my story, it's your story. The God who worked out his purposes back then works out his purposes today. In the middle of the chaos that our lives can be, in the midst of pain and sorrow and turmoil, in the midst of what one writer called the contradiction of our lives, in our world and in our lives, God is working out his purposes. That's the truth that chapter 1 tells us. Friends, we may not see the big picture now as we wrestle with life's challenges. Uh, Naomi certainly didn't. Our perspective may be skewed. Naomi certainly was. But we have more evidence than Naomi did. We live on this side of the cross of Christ and we can hold on to that real and certain hope in the shadow of that cross. Because, God, because just as God was intimately involved to bring about his purposes in the dark era of the judges, he was intimately involved on that dark day of the cross and he is intimately involved in your life today. We praise God for that. I'm going to pray and then we'll, if you're... Uh, I'll give a moment if anyone wants to ask a question or make a comment. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this story, that this, uh, as I said before, this little moment of history. But Lord, we thank you how it all fits in to your uh, greater plan, to your greater story, your history of, of um, saving this world in the Lord Jesus. Lord, sometimes we wonder where the Old Testament fits in and we question that. And it's a good question. But Lord, we see today that uh, this ordinary family 
with difficult times, but pretty ordinary day-to-day -day troubles and so forth, how they tell us a great deal about your plan and the hope and the, and the uh, forgiveness we have in you through the cross of Christ. Lord, we thank you for that today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, um, any, anyone got...